Today's episode is presented by Yelp. Yelp's mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They also offer great solutions for restaurants looking to streamline their front of house and increase sales. Millions of diners are already using Yelp, and these products are a great way to capitalize on that network. Head over to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to claim your free page and learn more about these powerful tools for your business. Now here we go. People are like, I love your plan. And I'm like, it's not a plan. It's a vision. The vision's where we're going. We'd have no idea how we're going to get there. (laughs) Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Are you ready to level up? The Pineapple Post has launched, and I'd like for you to be a part of it. It's a newsletter for people like you, people who want to learn and improve. It's delivered every Sunday, and it's packed with stories, videos, and audio content from the brightest minds in our industry. We're covering the latest news, innovations, and trends to inform and inspire the way you do business. When you're serious about your work and you're ready to take it to the next level, the Pineapple Post is here to help. You can sign up at pineapplepost.news. I hope you check it out. I bought into the same dream that you did. Build a restaurant, make it successful, rinse, and repeat. How well did that work for you? It took me down the path of exhaustion, frustration, and ultimately, failure. Ari Weinswig, the co-founder of Zingerman's in Ann Arbor, Michigan, took a different path. He created a community of businesses, each supporting the next. He stayed small and strategic and invested heavily in his team. What he's built is the stuff of dreams, and we start today's conversation with him answering this question. Was he the guy that dreamed this all up, or the guy that made that dream a reality? I would say that uh, when when Paul and I started, that I, in some ways, was, if you were going to stereotype more the integrator, but I certainly don't only do any, like, I, I mean, clearly, I, you know, so, uh, and I think that over time, like, I, I guess what I would say is he's more historically not in a, I'm not saying this in a judgmental bad way, but he's, it's, it's not those categories. It's more like he has this idea that he can float out there and he's very good at getting people to want to do it. Whatever that was, Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, I always get him confused. <laughs> uh, and then also that he gets very excited about something for good reasons. And then he can go like way into it. And then it's a year later, it's gone. <laughs> yeah. I don't mean everything goes away, but I mean, it's much more like, here's where I'm going now. And I'm, I have much, I have a high ability to hold course for better and for worse. Cause sometimes it gets one into trouble, but I can hold course for really long periods of time. Uh, but I also can go after like wacky, weird visions. Well, I like, you know, in reading all of your writing or much of your writing, you know, it's, it's really easy to grab a hold of your ideology, Mm -hmm. but you also seem to have a really analytical mind. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like you talk about, you know, envisioning the future. You write a step-by-step on how to, on how to vision your, your own business. Yeah. 
Well, and again, yes. I mean, that, that visioning stuff, I mean, I didn't make it up. I mean, but what we, yeah, I mean, I, I think that a lot of what has been rewarding for me, like I just wrote a piece that's in tomorrow's evening, so it will be out by the time this airs about good work, uh, which I wrote some about in part two of the book and in the introduction. And it came from something that Wendell Berry had written about good work and essentially good work is, is vocation. And I, I've taught it for many years now, but like this sort of a continuum and on one end is like bad jobs or bad work, which is better than no work. But essentially it's, you do as little, it's like bad food. You, you would eat as little as you have to. Like if you and I were stuck somewhere for 17 days and that was all we had was McDonald's, we would eat it. But grudgingly as little as possible and as, as, as unmindfully as we could. Mm -hmm. uh, in the middle of the continuum, you get to good jobs, which are what a lot of people have. It's pleasant. It's you pays okay. People are nice and whatever. But I, I don't think that's max capability. We can create good work. And good work is what I believe when we honor human nature, when we have all this stuff going on around uh treating people with dignity, involving them in running the business, teaching them to lead, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We can create good work and it won't work for everybody, but even if it's for a lot of people, and I, I think that's really what it's about. But I, I think for me, the good work in part is like, I mean, I come from a family that had academics in it. It's fine, but it's so not interesting because you don't do it. <laughs> Like, mm -hmm. And then, as you and I know, I mean, the food business is filled and I'm not judging people who just like do it. And I mean, when we start when I started and still now, I mean, there's all these people like, oh, my God, how can you stand it? Like the employees are making me crazy and like I can't take a vacation. And, you know, it's just the grind, the grind, the grind. And, you know, like it's it's just like so mind numbing. Right. And then there's the other end, which is like all in the intellectual clouds, but you don't have any employees. <laughs> So it's like, right. that's an awesome business theory. But like, what I want to know is like, what do you do when the employee starts crying in the middle of the shift? Right. Like, like that doesn't really have a lot to do with strategic planning. Like it's like, you need that too. But so I, I always really like that we combine the both because I think either for me alone, and I, I think really for most people is not that rewarding. And so uh, absolutely. I like systems design. And I like ideas uh, and I like it best when you can figure out how to make the idea into a reality because that's when it's most meaningful. I mean, ideas are cheap. Like I got a bazillion of them. It's, it's not hard to have ideas. Like the average street person that you run, you walk past or whatever, that they have as many ideas as you and I have. The challenge is getting them implemented. Uh, and, and I think also that Maggie from Zing Train, because of her passion for training and understanding of it, has embedded it in all of our heads a lot in me because we do a lot of work together so that I immediately start going like, okay, what are the basic steps that it takes to make this happen? And that's where a lot of that came from. Yeah. But I go back to the, to like the, the early nineties, right? You guys craft uh, Zingerman's 2009, which yep. for those people that are listening that don't know, it was like this central vision document for the company. Yep. Um, and then you made it public. Yeah. Um, and so two questions. Not the that. company, the vision. Yeah. No, no yes, the vision. Just um, well, people could have interpreted it the other way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Is was there concern in putting it out there? Because it's it's these big, bold ideas, it's these overarching themes. 
And, you know, you put it out there, you open the kimono and then you're automatically accountable to it. Um, was there was there concern in doing that? I think that Seth Godin was talking on your thing about worrying and he and I are not the same person at all, but we have some parallels and we both mm. come from the worrying Jewish uh, family, <laughs> uh, which is he talked about. And I, I, I would suggest that, I mean, a lot of what he said, I agree with. I mean, I, I have a slightly different take on anxiety, but it's really more terminology. I think we're saying the same thing, but I worrying his beliefs is based on beliefs. And, and I agree with what he said that I both, I don't know how old he is, but we're about the same age and the same, I'm guessing general background. And, and so like I came from a worrying family, so there's nothing that I'm not concerned about. I mean, I'm concerned if I pick the right t-shirt to wear today and I'm concerned I'm sitting in the wrong place and blah, blah, blah. But I wasn't super worried about it. I think doing it was like, we didn't like publish it to the world, like actively. It was more just, we don't hide it, you know? Right. But we did put it out to the customers, I guess, in a newsletter in 94 and stuff. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's I'm, I'm anxious about everything. I guess I've learned the hard way over the years <laughs> that, you, you know, natural law number nine is success means you get better problems. So I, I realized at some point along the road, like I'm either going to fail going after what I believe in, or I'm going to fail uh, you're going to, what, what happens is going to happen. So I'd rather fail going after what I believe in than succeed at what I don't believe in. Well, and how often did you go back over the years and reread that document? Oh, was pretty it, regularly. I mean, we use yeah. it as the, annual. so that, that was a 15 year vision. Yeah. Uh, and people are like, I love your plan. And I'm like, it's not a plan. It's a vision. The vision's mm -hmm. where we're going. We'd have no idea how we're going to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that work we would do annually, and we're now shifting to quarterly, which is actually Vern. I like the way Vern does a lot of that, and uh, Vern Harnish. And but but the idea is like the vision is the cathedral that you're working to construct. So it's essentially the blueprint for the cathedral. But it does when you draw the blueprint, it doesn't say like who's coming on Tuesday and are they going to put in the window or the door. Like mm -hmm. you're going to figure that out. And some of it's kind of obvious. Like if you're, if you're building a big cathedral, you got to start with the foundation, but like, you can't start with the cupola. It's not going to work. But beyond that, like whether you start on the East side or the West side, I don't know how they figure that out. I'm not in the trades, but somebody decides and that's where they start. So I, I think for us, the, that the literal planning happens as we go, but the key is that you're starting with the end in mind to, to reference Stephen Covey's framework. I don't know where mm -hmm. he got it, but we got it from uh, original work was Ron Lippett at University of Michigan uh, at Institute of Social Research in the 50s and 60s. And then through another guy, Stash Kazmierski, who taught it to us. So, yeah, it's scary, but but I believed in it. Well, and did you were these original ideas or were you looking at other businesses and in, in this industry and in others and pulling pulling well, in, from, you know, I think, as you know, in food, and it's true in life, there's really nothing new. I mean, it's just recom recombining things in different ways. So there's certainly pieces. We, I guess the more direct question is, were we modeling it after someone else? And the answer is no. Um, in hindsight, I can see like there's like Mondragon in the Basque country in northern Spain. And I, I kind of knew Rich Melman's businesses because I went to high school in Skokie and they kind of, you know, but I, I mean, I didn't really know a lot about it. So we're all influenced by other people. There's nothing really totally new, but we put that together on our own. And it really came from 
creative tension, I guess, in, in a lot of ways, because I, we, we, from the beginning, we only wanted one, like I, you know, you've been in the food business a long time. I, I think it's not, I don't know that anybody would disagree. Even the people who have multiple units of the same thing, like the original is just cooler. Like it's right. just got better energy. And when you open the one in the suburbs, I, I don't think it's like bad and, and it's super convenient and the sales are good and it builds on all of what y'all been doing and it's great, but it's not the same. Like, it's not the same. So I never liked those and I, I didn't begrudge other people doing it, but I just wanted like this one that was going to be like this amazing thing that you went to. Cause we all know, like I always think in, in speaking of Spain and I think of Barcelona in the, in Catalonia uh, and Cal Pep is this amazing little tapas seafood tapas bar. And there's like one man, the guy's behind the counter and I'm like, this is what I want. Like you go in there and it's awesome. And people wait an hour to get in there and he doesn't have 17 of them all over Spain and he didn't open one in Manhattan. And I don't know, maybe they did now and I don't know, but, but anyway, that's really what I was drawn to. So I, I think Paul was good for that for, in the beginning, but in 2000, in uh, 1993. So we were 11 years in business when he sat me down in front of the deli that morning to ask what I wanted to be doing in 10 years, which is where that 2009 vision came from. Uh, he was not averse to opening other places. I, I was, but he really wanted to grow. And so then it was like a year of figuring out, well, like, how do you grow, but still keep this one unique place. And so what we came up with was this community of businesses. So we would grow by opening other Zingerman's businesses um, that each would have its own specialty so that we could keep the deli as this one of a kind but that we could grow the organization and create opportunity by opening other businesses. And we wanted managing partners in each business. So somebody who had a passion for what that business did and that we would, we would create one organization with these semi-autonomous pieces within it. So that's really where it came from. Well, and, and it's, it, it leads me to my next question, which is there's a huge difference between management and leadership. And, and early on in, in the, the Ziegerman's, corporate infrastructure. You mm -hmm. guys decided to lead rather than manage. And I, I guess my, my first question is, how, how, do you, how do you define the differences between management and leadership? And two, when did you discover that they were different? Some people never figure it out. Well, I think my beliefs around it have evolved over the years. I, I think that anybody who's an effective leader has to learn to manage, like really. I mean, because you can't get in, nothing gets done. Like, I mean, if you give a great halftime talk, but you don't know how to draw up a play, like I, it's not going to work. Now you don't have to be the implementer and you don't have to be the one doing everything by any means. Uh, I, I think it's evolved for us. And I, when we opened, we only had two employees. So, I mean, we were personally making 80% of the sandwiches or whatever. Um, in part three of the book, which is on managing <clears throat> ourselves, there's a, essay I wrote that's kind of what I call a cover version of an article by Edgar Schein uh, that was about stages of organizational development. And what he wrote about kind of blew my mind and it really helped me understand a lot. And that was that in the, in the leadership studies field or whatever, people argue a lot about what's the right style and the wrong style, and this is better and that's worse. And what he said, which totally made sense is y'all are asking the wrong question because there's not one objectively right style or wrong style. What's critical is, do you have the style that's most effective for the stage of development at which your organization is at? So, I mean, I don't have kids, but I was one and you have kids. And 
in, in essence, like if you, if you parent a two-year-old and it's working really well, you don't go, I'm just going to keep doing that because mm-hmm. by the time they're six, it's going to be bad. And at 12, <laughs> it's going to be a nightmare. And at 22, they're going to put you in jail. So mm-hmm. it's, it's not that you were a bad parent when they were a two-year-old. It's just your style needs to evolve. Now with a kid, they're always going to grow older. So there's not really an option. With a business, we actually have an option, which is you don't need to grow. Like it's right. totally legit. Like the guy called Pup is awesome, man. Go there. He works hard. Love it. I love La Chicha in San Francisco, Sardinian restaurant at the bottom of Noe Valley. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's great, man. We, I love going there. Tammy and I go there every time we're in San Francisco. He's in the kitchen. She's in the dining room. They're always there. They're closed. I think Sunday, Monday, like it's great, you know, but you, you have different problems when you choose that, when you are doing it that way, you don't need to develop a lot of other leaders because you're there every day. And I don't think that's bad. It's just, if you want to grow, that style will kill you or kill the organization or both. And, and so we, and then I I think around that time, what really switched for me to, to get at it is I started to realize that designing the organization and creating organizational processes was as much a creative act as cooking. And not that I don't still love cooking and pay attention to the food. It's just that writing an amazing vision and designing a process for visioning, back to your earlier question, are as much a creative act as designing some amazing dish or finding this incredible olive oil. It's all creativity, right? And so now what I would say, fast forwarding, is that a manager is a job title with specific job responsibilities, just like in our world, the host has job responsibilities, whatever. But about 10, eight, nine years ago, I had this belated glimpse of the obvious that we need to teach everybody to, to lead. And so our expectation is everybody's going to lead. I don't care if it's your second day and you're 16 or it's your last day, you're still responsible for leadership. So the manager has job responsibilities and they need to lead. The busboy has job responsibilities and they need to lead because sometimes the busboy sees stuff that the owner of the GM or whatever won't see because they're closer to the table and they hear stuff and they need to take action. Like if the guest is unhappy, the normal situation, well, I'm just the busboy. I can't do it. It's like, no, dude, lead. Like, let's get going. Jump in there. We've been training you. This is what we're training you for in the same way that, you know, whatever. Sometimes they draft a rookie with the thought the rookie's never going to play all year. And then three people get hurt in one game and there they go, man. And you got to be ready to get in there. And uh, so, so I think that's what I would say manager job has job description, job expectations, responsibilities, and they need to lead. But leadership is really something that everybody here is responsible for. Well, and in, in reading so much of what you, you've written, one, one of the things that really becomes clear through the process is that it is, it is incredibly important that you invest in your people so that they'll invest in you. And they're not going to invest in you until you've put the time and effort and money into investing in them. Can you yeah. talk like actionably about what that looks like? Well, uh, it, yeah, it looks like a lot of things. I mean, that's a good question. So there's another l- item on the natural laws list, which is if you want your staff to give great service to your guest or your client, depending on what industry you're in, but in ours, let's say guest, you and I as leaders need to give great service to them. And this comes from servant leadership, which comes, excuse me, from Robert Greenleaf, 
who I was just talking about today, was born in 1904, July 14th, in case you're curious, uh, in Terre Haute, Indiana. Uh, and he, in 1977, I think, he worked for AT&T for like 38 years. So like, this is like completely not, you know, as you know, like I'm fascinated by Emma Goldman and a lot of this is like Eastern European anarchists that came here and all that. But this guy's like, wore a suit to work every day, quite religious, from middle America. And he wrote this book in 1977 called Servant Leadership, which is a hugely radical approach, which is essentially that the leader's job first and foremost is to serve the organization, not the other way around. Which when I, when you say that, like everybody goes, yeah, 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 of course. But <laughs> the reality is not, that's not what most people think. Most people <laughs> believe that they started the business so they could make a lot of money and they would do what they wanted to do. And yeah, they want to be nice to the employees, but it's basically like you have a, an engine and you're going to treat the, the engine well instead of treating it badly, but it's still mm -hmm. just the engine. Th this is a different thing. This is like, I'm here to serve the organization. Uh, it's actually, I don't know what it is, 57 years ago, last two days ago that uh, President Kennedy was killed and his, his speech uh, Ask not what the country can do for you. Ask what you could do for the country, which we could use a little more of right now. No judgment. Uh, <laughs> is essentially at the core of servant leadership. It's ask not what the business can do for you, whether you're the leader or the busboy or the dishwasher or the new host. Ask what you can do for the organization, because when you're serving the organization, then we're all going to win together. One element of actualizing that to your question that we teach here, we have six elements of servant leadership. One is vision. And the second one on the list is that we treat the staff like customers. And so literally, I, I, this is not a figure of speech. This is not an exaggeration. When I come to work every day, I think of the staff like my customers. Now, it doesn't mean I'm the formal butler in rural England in 1863. It's, it's you know, there's customers that, as you would imagine, I've been waiting on for 35 years. I give them shit. I tease them. I swear I tease them about their outfit, you know, whatever. I mean, that's the relationship we have. But the reality is I really never forget they're the customer. And if they switch into complaining mode, then I got to get back into my appropriate mode. And it's the same with staff. I mean, and and so that means all the really simple stuff that everybody who's worked the dining room knows how to do, like smile, mm -hmm. act like you're happy to see them, greet them, find out what they want, listen well get it for them. I mean, the data is like American executives complete like 50% of what they say they're going to do. I'm, I'm like, you guys, if your staff did that, you would have fired them on week one. Like, yeah. don't tell the, the staff member, you'll get back to them on Tuesday and then get back to them on Friday. Like if they did that to you, you'd be all over them. And it also means learning to handle their complaints. Well, just like a customer. People go like, well, you're not just going to do everything they want. I'm like, we do not do everything the customer wants either. That's bullshit. What we do is find a dignified way to get to a win-win outcome that we can all buy into, right? But we don't just give away the whole wine cellar because the guy didn't like one bottle of wine that he claimed was corked, right? So it's the same with the staff. We need to serve the organization. And sometimes that means I need to challenge you because I need to help you get to greatness. And I'm not helping you if I allow you to do something poorly, but I can do it in a way that always emanates dignity and respect, right? So the energy that I'm giving towards them and whether that's supporting them with teaching, learning, helping them grow, coaching. Sometimes it's following them because if we want everybody to lead and the bus play goes, table 104 is really unhappy. Can you go there right now? 
and I go, uh, dude, I'm busy. <laughs> That's not going to work. Right. Right. So I think absolutely we need to, to help them. And that's all based on the belief stuff, which is the belief that they can all learn to be great. Mm-hmm. And that there's, there's no, like, I don't really know what I'm doing. We're just trying to figure it out. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's, a, it's fallacious. Like when people act like they know what they're doing, it's not humble. It's not effective. It's not good. I can be responsible, but I, I'm just trying to figure it out. So the more I can help them to grow as leaders, the better they're going to do. And without question, I mean, when people feel supported, engaged and cared for and, and encouraged to grow and be themselves, like they're going to do better work. Duh. Well, and, and with all of it, you had mentioned a minute ago that, you know, that this applies to this industry, but it applies to other industries as mm-hmm. well. When you, when you started doing the training. So when you started mm-hmm. writing the pamphlets in the books that dealt with organizational infrastructure and leadership and management, was, was the goal to, to share information to benefit a whole you saw in the hospitality industry or was it in all industries? Uh, okay, so this is, yeah. So the business school version of our history is that Paul and I were so smart that we saw the strategic opportunity that people were going to want to learn how we worked. So we started Zingtree. The true story is that when you write a vision, one of the benefits, and there are many, is that when you write an inspiring vision and you share it, like you talked about putting it on public, great people want to be part of great organizations. And if it's an inspirational vision, they come to you. Now, I don't mean there's like a line out the door of like, here, I want to be your partner, but uh, Maggie Bayless had worked with us in the restaurant. She was a German lit major from Oberlin. She went back to Michigan later and got her MBA. Long story short, fell in love with training design and uh, was always frustrated, as she tells it, because she couldn't find a company to do that work in that was running the way Paul and I were trying to run the deli. And then when we wrote that vision and talked about having these other Zingerman's businesses with managing partners, I think her husband uh, said something like, well, why don't you go partner with them. Mm-hmm. And as she tells it, which makes total sense. And I could relate, like she would never have opened a business on her own totally, but she knew us and it seemed like a good fit. And so it was really her vision with input from us, but her vision to create a training business. And the original thought was, uh, A, she would help us in- internally as a separate business. So it's not the training department, but, um, and then also that we would uh, design training that other people would have access to. Cause we were getting calls, like probably half the people listen to this for consulting work, but we didn't know anything about consulting and we really don't do consulting. We do training, right? We teach what we do. Um, and that's where it came from. And then, so her training expertise and passion for good training design, which is again, as amazing as creating this incredible pasta dish or whatever, uh, combined with what we knew about the work is really what, made that happen right and in the same way as you asked about it is it anxiety provoking to share the vision like i mean it was very anxiety provoking to start teaching stuff like customer service because like you know and i know we all fall short every day just like lebron james still misses shots like nobody gets it right all the time Mm -hmm. and everybody on his podcast knows what the customer may not realize and i'm i will tell people this like do you understand like to serve a tent top, which we can't do right now. Well, now we can't serve anybody this week because the dining mm-hmm. rooms are closed. But to serve a tent top with three course, like appetizer, main course, and dessert, and drinks, and coffee, and get every single thing right is almost a miracle. 
Yeah. Like I don't care where you go. Like it's just that most customers don't notice in the same way that people don't remember that LeBron James missed the shot in the middle of the first quarter because it's irrelevant, right? They remember that he made the shot driving to the basket with one and a half seconds left on the clock and they won the game and he's awesome. Okay. So, you know, the reality is it's all imperfect. And then we put ourselves out there and like, now we're teaching it. People are coming to town to go to the seminar and where are they going to go eat? Like the deli or, you know, <laughs> and then it's inevitable. Like we're going to screw it some up right, and, and, right. and they're going to complain. Cause we just, you know, but, but then Maggie and I, I mean, we would talk and it's just like, you know what, this is what it means like to do this work. And we're going to get complaints because we're going to screw up and we get to model what we're teaching. Right. And it's happened. It's not fun. Uh, I don't like it any more than I'm sure LeBron James or whoever likes missing a shot. Right. But, but it's part of the work. And, and we, if you don't make yourself vulnerable, then nothing great's going to happen. Right. So it's true in music. It's true in art. It's true in sports. I'm, I'm sure it's true in parenting. It's, it's, <laughs> it's definitely it's, true in parenting. Yeah. It's, well, it's, it's the humbling piece of it. That's so important really. We're, we're working on averages over here. We're just trying, we're just trying to be more right than we are wrong over the course of my yeah. daughter's life. Yeah. Well, I, nobody's right. If you, if you were to pretend that you were right all the time, it would be horrible parenting. Yeah, for sure. The model you had with Maggie, that that's the model you stamped out again and again and again, right? With Yeah, uh, the, I think stamped out is is an industrial word that we're going to stay away from. So it's more okay. like an ecosystem. We're trying to create different parts of the ecosystem. Um, so Maggie's focused on training in the same way that my girlfriend grows heirloom tomatoes. But you could have somebody down the street that's focused on baking and somebody else that, like we do, that makes cheese and uh, but the idea was to to get settings where people had a passion for what that business was, because as you and I know, it's it's one thing to like, it's a ton of work to get open. Like I heard you yeah, on yeah. the other podcast, whichever one it was saying, like, when you opened the door, you were exhausted, but then you realized that was the, <laughs> that was actually where the work starts, yeah, which, yeah. Is, which is totally true. And the real work is like five years down the road. Like in my mind, you know, when you ask mm-hmm. if I'm an implementer or visionary, well, I love the vision, but like, I am. Like, I think it's really one of our great achievements is that we're still engaged and excited about the work 39 years, almost 39 years later. And that the 2032 vision that we just rolled out last this year will put us at 50 years. And I might not even be alive, but it's still pretty amazing. And that the organization can continue after Paul and I are gone. And that that's what's cool to me, because it's like building this or having this amazing, you know, redwood forest and not just a flash in the pan that was super popular for 12 months and then crashed. Well, for the people that don't know, I, I do I do want to unpack the, the business model that you have because, mm-hmm. and correct me if I'm wrong, the idea is, is that you collectively come up with an idea with a member of your team. Mm-hmm. They execute that idea and then become the managing partner in that mm-hmm. separate entity. Yes. Uh, yes. It's It sounds a lot quicker when you say it than it actually happens <laughs> in reality. I'm sure it's, it's a, very easy. It's a lot I'm of sure long conversations easy. and it starts with them drafting a vision and then we work on it together. And like anything, I mean, I, I have come to realize like you learn, one learns a ton about how it's going to go based on how it goes. Like when they share the draft vision and you give feedback and then if they completely hate it and argue with you, it's kind of over. 
because mm-hmm. it's that's that's only on paper. Wait till you actually on the floor on Saturday night and six people called in sick and you know whatever people are yelling at you. So yes, but that is the model. And and then I mean I was just uh, I just wrote a few weeks ago in the e news that I do about consensus, mm-hmm. and and I uh, I wrote in there. Then I busted myself in the process, but I wrote in there like when I started drafting, I was like, you know, there's it's really actually an important piece of the culture and the organization that we've created is that we chose back in 94 to use consensus for decision making at the partner level. But no one ever writes about it like it never like. I mean, we've had a lot of articles about us and it just never even comes up. So I was like thinking to myself, like, man, it'd be so cool to have a headline that, you know, was like consensus helps create $50 million company. Like put that in Forbes, right? Right. <laughs> anyway, then I was like, oh, I guess I could just put it in for my own headline, right? So I did with quote marks around it. But but anyway, we, yeah, so we used early on, uh, Paul, it's shifted as we try to move towards uh, exit plans and all that kind of stuff. But Paul and I always owned a majority of the shares in the business. And then like Maggie in this case, I think originally owned like 19% or whatever. And so the obvious question was like, well, from her perspective and not that she would necessarily say it, but her lawyer or whatever would say like, well, this is stupid. She's going to be the partner and run it, but you guys could just outvote her every day if you don't like what she's doing. Mm -hmm. And so we just said, well, technically that's right, but we're going to use consensus so that she's not just suffused in our own, whatever she gets the same say we do. And, and so that, peer-to-peer anarchistic stewardship relationship, whatever term you want to use to call it, I I think has really changed the dynamic within the organization. And then the second piece of that, which is also huge, is that we, for whatever reason, uh, had the insight to say we're going to run the whole organization, so the whole community of businesses. So Maggie is the managing, was the, now there's two, but was the managing partner at Zingtrain with Paul and my input. She runs it. We use consensus, but it's implicit consensus. So it's not like she's calling every five minutes going, I'm going to mm-hmm. move the forks over here. Um, it's, she says it's more like if I was worried that you guys weren't going to like it, then I knew in my gut I should call you and talk about uh-huh. it. But then we simultaneously made this other decision, which was to run the whole Zingerman's community of businesses by consensus of the par- of the, all the partners. And so not only did Maggie then have an equal say in running her the business she was leading, but in running this whole community of businesses, which at the time was much smaller, but we just stayed with it. So we run the whole Zingerman's community by consensus of now, uh, I think there's 18 partners that includes me and Paul. And then six years ago, we added what we call staff partners. So that's a whole nother conversation, but three non-partners who become partners for two-year terms. And mm-hmm. they have the same say Paul and I have, and it's very interesting. And it's gonna, when you ask if it's scary, I, I, it was definitely scary early on. Like now I'm just used to it. It's the way that we work, but for outside people, if I tell them, yeah, like, yeah dude, like get a line cook and then they're going to be like your partner for two years and you're going to not be able to override their decisions. And they're like, what are you fucking crazy? But you know what? It, it works. And uh, CLR James, uh, was, I was, I didn't know this until long after we had done it, but CLR James, uh, radical uh, Trinidadian, I think historian. And he, conveniently for me, uh, wrote this line like 50 years ago that said, every cook can govern. And, mm. and it's, it's right. Uh, and then Murray Buchan, also very interesting uh, anarchist, uh, passed away seven or eight, 
10 years ago, uh, lived in Vermont, uh, much of his life in Burlington. And he, he said uh, something along the lines of every normal human being is capable of running any organization of which they're a part. And I actually believe that. And I don't mean you could just pull them off the line and put them in charge because they've had no training. Right. Mm -hmm. So you asked about investment. So if we're teaching everybody to lead from the time they start here, all the leadership classes are open to whoever wants to go. People get copies of the books if they want to read them. They're involved in conversations. By the time you actually asked them to take over, because whatever, six people got hurt, they would have already been participating at a high level. The typical setting is they're completely excluded from all those conversations. They have zero clue what's going on. And so they'll mm -hmm. give you really dumb answers because all they have is their own hugely limited perspective. And right. uh, Colin Ward, another interesting uh, anarchist from England, and he said something along the lines of society makes its morons and then despises them for it. And mm. I, I would suggest in business at large, not just the food business, we make our morons and then make fun of them or demean them or get cynical over their stupidity. But really, we did it. Because if you never taught them how to think like a leader, you didn't teach them business finance, you didn't teach them the cost of a, something they want to make happen, how would they know? Like, you know, it's like For taking sure. your kid to the toy store. And uh, a friend of mine, this is years ago, and, you know, she, she goes, you know, I took my kid to the toy store. And I always say, like all employees, like they want a new oven, they want a new walk-in, let's redo all that. And that's like, I'm like, yeah, it's like taking a nine-year-old to a toy store. Like, oh, <laughs> you yeah, want everything. Sure. If you're not open book management and they don't understand profitability and where the money comes from and that you got to have the cash and what are you going to do? They just want everything, right? And mm -hmm. she goes, yeah, I took my kid to the toy store and he, he wanted this. And I said, I don't have any money. And he goes, well, just go to the ATM. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You know, in looking through the timeline, looking through the community of businesses, the, the question that, that, that I landed on above all others is, what do you do every day? I, I can't, like, like, how do you yeah. fit into this ecosystem? Because it, it's overwhelming to look at, at this enormous structure, you know? Right. Well, people often say, uh, you haven't, so I'm not talking about you, but they'll go like, yeah, they have, Paul and I, they Ari, they have this empire in Ann Arbor. I'm like, gee, dude, I'm an anarchist. Like, this is not an empire. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I believe, I mean, I don't know which metaphor to use, but it's, it's, we're, we're an important piece of the work, right? So if we went away tomorrow, would everything be the same? No. That said, we have a lot of govern, like literal governance, like all this transition stuff that's going on in Washington, like we have that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And you can't just keep calling for more recounts. <laughs> 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 the decision's in the notes. So like we don't have to go over it for the 300th time. And mm -hmm. so it's it's really about being a leader among leaders. And and then so what do I do every day? Uh, so during the early months of the pandemic, a common question and I wrote about this people were like well what are you doing to take care of yourself you know and I thought about it I'm like honestly I'm not doing anything different than I've been doing for decades like because in the spirit of a lot of people you interview like if you like it's what uh, Seth Godin talked about it's the practice right so if you have good practice then you don't really do anything any different like I'm wearing a mask I'm an introvert, so I didn't really go out anyway, but now I'm really not going out, but it just gives me a good excuse not to go out. So, mm -hmm. but, but I, I journal every morning. I might've missed 10 days out of the last five years. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I run every afternoon. If I need to run in the morning, I'll do it, but I prefer later in the day. And then uh, every night for many years, I would go back to the roadhouse and work the floor. So that's uh, with the outside 200 seats, regional American food. Uh, and I, I, it just sort of started one night because I walked in as everybody who's on here will understand, I walked in and I turned the corner and I was like, oh shit, table 401, they need water. So I go back mm-hmm. and get the water pitcher and I fill their water. And then I look and, you know, table 405 needs water. So I give them water. And then 406 is like, could I have some more barbecue sauce? And oh, <laughs> like yeah. pretty soon two hours were gone, right? And so, but then I realized like, this is actually a great way to work. And um, with all due respect to dining room managers who walk the floor and manage. I never liked that because I always felt like I wasn't doing anything and it was intimidating for people. And I don't know about you, but I've almost never told a manager when something was wrong, if they just wandered over and asked me how it was, because I don't know them and I'm not like, I want to get into it. I'm in the middle of my dinner. Like, even if it's not good, like, unless I'm in a really, really bad space (laughs) or you're my friend, I'm not going to tell you. And, but then when I was pouring water, like, I just like, A, half the customers knew who I was. So they're like, oh, this is awesome. And they'll like tell me stuff because I'm standing there that they're not going to like call me or email me to tell me that their French fries weren't hot enough or that uh, whatever, but I'm standing right there. So they'll tell me. Half the customers have no idea who I am. So they're going to tell me stuff. <laughs> and then that they wouldn't tell you mm-hmm. if they knew that you were the owner. And then it's a way to coach people and see what's going on. But I'm not just like standing there with the clipboard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, so uh, Billy, yeah, at 7.30 last night, I took a note. You didn't handle that. Like, no one wants to hear that. So now, like, I'm on mm-hmm. the floor with them and I'm helping do stuff because it's grounding. And in a lot of good ways, like, it really, it became this regimen for me because not only did it help them, but it helped me because it brought me back to the basics without getting caught up in that bad thing that you and I know a lot of people can be in, like where they can never get off the floor. Right. They never leave. They're on the line cooking every day. Like, mm-hmm. It's not that it's like an hour or half an hour or two hours. And it's really grounding to like, get back into basics, man. And like when you're picking up crayons that the kid threw on the floor and you're, you know, whatever. And like, and then I would just go like, I'm having a really rough time. I'm going to go scrape dishes at the dish line. Nobody gives me advice. It's calming. I'm really it good is. at it. You're plugging in. Totally. The if you do it all day, it's a, it's tiring. If you do mm-hmm. it for 20 minutes a day, it's dude, it's awesome. Like, you know, clean to walk in. Awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. You can make progress. Right. So it became this thing that I started doing. And there's an essay I ended up writing in part two of the book called managing by pouring water. Cause that works in our industry. Well, not mm-hmm. during pandemic, but it works in our industry. It does. Uh, but I, I think any industry has an equivalent of it. So uh, actually, uh, Patty Poppy is uh, the CEO of Consolidated uh, Energy in Michigan, and I did some zinc train stuff and spoke for her group. And I was—I don't know how this came up. They some of they're in Jackson, uh, about half hour west of here, but they come in to eat, and so they would see me pouring water. And I don't know how it came up. And she's like, "Yeah, I work this is the call center every Friday afternoon," and this is like a giant utility company with half the state mm-hmm. of Michigan. And she's like, no, I, and she's up there in jeans when I'm speaking and she's working. She's like, yeah, I go in for two, three hours and I just answer the phone. And I'm like, it's so great. Like if you did that all day, it's terrible because there's a whole organization to lead. But, right. 
But if you're always removed from the reality and it's all second, third, fourth hand, you, you're, you're out of touch, man. In the same way, like you can't farm effective, like industrial farming you can do from the cab, but you can't do like old school farming without putting your hands in the soil and yeah. looking at the leaves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like my girlfriend's a farmer, like she'll, you could tell from the leaf, you know, that something's wrong. So I think it's the same thing. So if that's my date. And then I go home and I cook dinner. We eat Are like Spaniards. We eat like Spaniards at like nine or 10, 11 o'clock at night. And we cook for our dog. We have four dogs and they, we cook for them. That's a good dog, dad. That's so important. It is. I don't know if they really appreciate it. Just like your kid doesn't appreciate <laughs> it. And our dogs don't go out to other kids' houses for dinner. Uh, so uh, uh, it's important, you know, for you and me, but I don't think they go like, man, this is so great. I'll bet dogs down the block, you know, they're getting dry <laughs> kibble and Purina and we're getting this like organic vegetables and olive oil. And, you know, this cool pit smoked chicken from the roadhouse is awesome. Or that albacore mm -hmm. tuna you got us line caught from Washington state. Awesome. My wife, my wife, the one thing that she took for granted for years is getting to eat fine dining restaurant food every evening. You know, I would always bring food home from the restaurant. I, I, I would call her before and say, hey, do you want me to pick you up anything? Yeah. And and since we closed the restaurant back in March, it has been it has been such a hurdle to have to cook for oneself when it comes to dinner. Yeah, oh. See, I like it, man. It's like ground, like I'm a line cook, you know, and so mm -hmm. it's grounding. And I, I mean, everybody's different, you know, but like eating in the business is not relaxing for me it's super stressful because i can't get, i'm not I, I i guess i could but i am not gonna like sit there and not look like we all do right like like everybody in the food business and you probably does your wife work in the food business or she does not right does she ever like ask you like why aren't you you looking at her your eyes are going everywhere when you go out to dinner <laughs> right. it's like because this is right. what i do all day is like my eyes i'm like the quarterback like i'm reading the defense and i'm like right that it's table needs personal. a wobble it's wedge. Just, yeah. I have a like decades of like learning to like read everybody's eye movements and see what's going on. And so it's not relaxing. It's stressful. And, and then I'm serving the staff. So if they need something, then now I'm like getting up and then Tammy's like, why can't you sit here and talk to me? And it's like, ah. that's so, right. Yeah. So when I go home, it's relaxing, man. I cook. And plus, if you're, if you're a cook, then with all due respect to the line cooks, it's not, like I'd rather just make it the way I want it. Mm -hmm. Even if it's my recipe at some point that has been morphed 16 times, you know, it's still not the same. And so it's just more relaxing and it's a good way to end the day. Good ritual or Seth Godin's practice. Mm -hmm. The way I end the interviews is I ask the guest if there's anything that they would like to say directly to the audience, any yeah. advice, any words of encouragement. Keep going is a good one. Uh, well, we didn't talk about, but I want to reference the uh, Independent Restaurant Coalition, which I know you know about, but mm -hmm. uh, saverestaurants.com. Anybody that's on this podcast has interest either because they're in restaurants or like restaurants or aspire to be in restaurants. So please go on saverestaurants.com. We are working really hard and maybe by the time this airs, it'll pass, but we're trying to get the Restaurants Act passed to provide support for independent restaurants. So not chains, not publicly traded, not that they're bad, but to go into the local independence and provide support that is clearly needed in the same way that the federal government has supported the auto companies, the airlines, uh, the banks, 
Uh, so please, that would be wonderful. Uh, my email is ariatzingrams.com. People are more than welcome to reach out. I will learn from everybody on this podcast as much as they're going to learn from me. And then uh, I'm sure you'll put the uh, show notes in for the books and the, yep. and the weekly e-news because that's all like what I'm thinking all the time. And uh, the new pamphlets on humility. So stay humble. It's a better way to go. That's Ari Weinswig of Zingerman's. Check out our show notes for links to Ari's community of businesses and his library of tools and resources. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content or read our weekly blog, go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.